Tonight at 6 o'clock, we're ordaining three deacons. If you're a part of our church family, this is an important time in the life of our church. Would you come and support our church? Would you come and support these three men uh, as we set them apart for service? That's tonight at 6 o'clock. And then I just want to say a word about our prayer meeting on Wednesdays at 6 o'clock. I want to invite you to come and pray with us. I believe prayer is so important. We have something for your kids at 6, your students at 6. You can drop them off and then come to D204-203, and we just pray together. We don't do anything fancy. We don't sing. We don't preach. We just pray. Well, our, do you, I think we need prayer right now. And so one thing we're doing, we're for the next 30 days, we're praying for our country. Every week in the midweek prayer list, there'll be the next seven days ahead that you can pray. And specific quests. This, this week we, we prayed one day for law enforcement. We prayed one day about the coronavirus. We prayed one day for the election coming up. We're praying for our country for the next 30 days. So I invite you to come and join us uh, and pray together at 6 o'clock on Wednesday night. We'd love to see you there. Today I begin a five-week sermon series through Isaiah 40 through 45. We're going to go about a chapter a week through these. And the title of the series is, How Great is Our God, that we've just sung. You see, I think in these days of pandemic and quarantine and economic downturn and uh, uh, racial tension and election politics and all of these things, when some people are sort of frazzled and, and anxious and worried, and I just think we need a fresh vision of how great our God is. And so that's what we want to do, and there's no better place to get that from Isaiah 40 through 45. In the mid-1960s, J.B. Phillips wrote a little book that's become a Christian classic entitled, Your God is Too Small. And by that he meant that for many of us, our conception of God is inadequate that we have a downsized version of God that we believe in. In each chapter in this book, he just went over an, a miniature concept of God. For example, one of them is God in a box. Just put God in a box, contain Him. One of them is uh, the grand old man. You know, some think God's just sort of, He's old, he's out of touch, he smells funny, he forgets a lot of stuff, you know, he's just, he's just a grand old man. And one chapter is the pale Galilean, meek and mild, you know, sort of the idea that God's just sort of, uh, he, he's just a little bit weak. And we need a robust, real concept of the greatness of God. And so we're going to look at five themes as I've gone through these chapters I've identified five themes that are repeated over and over about the very nature of God. Today, we begin with the first chapter, Isaiah 40, and here's the theme. God is strong, and He gives His strength to the weary. And that's what we're going to look at in this chapter of Isaiah 40. Now, Isaiah 40 begins a new section in Isaiah. Let me give you some background. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are one section and they are set about 700 B.C., and Isaiah the prophet is warning the people of Judah, God is going to judge you if you don't turn from your sins and going to send you into exile. So the first 39 chapters of this book are largely about judgment. But chapters 40 through 66 are very different, and they are set 150 years later when the people have are in exile and it's coming near the end and it's a word of hope and encouragement to them. These two parts are so different that some critics don't think Isaiah wrote both of them simply because they don't believe in predictive prophecy. I believe that in 700 AD, God uh, inspired Isaiah to write chapters 1 through 39 to the current situation and then he allowed him to look 150 years later to what would happen near the end of the exile and that's the setting of what we have in Isaiah 40. So look at the opening word of Isaiah 40. This new section of Isaiah is not judgment, but what's the first word? Comfort. Comfort, he says it twice, my people says your God. So now the message to the people is one of comfort. Here's the deal. Here's what you need to get. God's going to be to you what you need him to be. And when you are proud and resistant and unrepentant, God will speak a word of judgment to you. Because he loves you and wants you to bring you back. 
But when you are broken and acknowledge that you're a sinner, he speaks a word of comfort to you. Comfort. Comfort my people. So depending on where you are today is what God is going to say to you today. Are you, are you in sin and you're, you're resistant to him? He's going to speak a word of judgment. But if you recognize that you are weak and broken, then he'll speak a word of comfort to you. And that's what he says here. So some of you may need to hear that today. Here's what he says to you. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Verse 2, speak tenderly. You hear it here? Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. He's saying the 70-year exile is just about over now. That her sin has been paid for. That she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then in verses 3-5, through it's like God is saying, I'm going to bulldoze a road to you. I'm coming to you. I'm coming to get you. And I'm going to bulldoze a road to you. And I'm going to bulldoze a road through the desert so that you can go home from Babylon where you've been in exile back home to Judah. Verses 3 and following, a voice calling in, of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. You hear the bulldozing of a road there. And the rough ground become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God says, I'm coming to you. In verses 10, he shares the theme of this chapter. Here it is, verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him. Our God is a powerful God. Don't ever forget that. That's what this chapter is about. The sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm is described in verse 10 as a mighty arm. Okay? Now see the other part of it in verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arm. So you hear the depiction of his arms now? In verse 10, he is the God of a mighty arm. In verse 11, he is the God who gently cares for lambs in his arms. Here's the two sides of our God. And he tends his flock like a shepherd. And he gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. And he gently leads those that have young. So the rest of this chapter is unfolding these two verses. The two parts of God. That he is strong and he cares for those who are weak. You hear it? Verse 10, verse 11, mighty arm, gentle arm. So let's go through this chapter and we're going to unfold those two themes. First of all, the first theme is God is big and strong. How big, you say? How strong? Well, look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? So here's our first image for you of how great our God is. He measures the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. Now, the hollow of your hand, if you hold out your hand in your palm, that depression right there in your palm, that's the hollow of your hand, okay? I measured how much water the hollow of my hand will hold. Mine holds two tablespoons. Yours may hold more, may hold less, but I poured it into a tablespoon. Mine holds two tablespoons. But God holds all the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. The average depth of the oceans on our earth is 12,000 feet. Over two miles deep is the average depth. The deepest part of our oceans is 35,000 feet deep. That's pretty deep. And yet God holds all of those oceans in the hollow of his hand. How great is our God! Next part of the verse says, Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. So the breadth of your hand is the distance from your thumb to the end of your pinky when your hand is extended. I measured mine. It's eight and a half inches. Yours might be more, might be less. Mine's eight and a half inches, the breadth of my hand. And this verse says that God can do this and he can span the whole universe, all the heavens. Now, they tell us that what we've been able to observe so far of the universe and what we can see of the most distant stars through the most powerful telescopes, 
that what we know of the breadth of the universe so far is that it is 93 billion light years across. That is light traveling at 186,000 miles per second. Light travels fast, doesn't it? You ever try to turn the light off and jump in the bed before it gets dark? It's, it's hard to do. It travels fast, doesn't it? 186,000 miles a second. And so at 186,000 miles a second, they're saying that the light from that most distant star takes 92 billion years to reach us. Now that's just, that's just a little beyond my comprehension. And yet God says, that's no distance for me. I can span the universe in the breadth of my hand. How great is our God. And he says, continuing in verse 12, Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? No wonder it says in verse 13, Who can fathom the Spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as His counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten Him? And who taught Him the right way? Who was it that taught Him knowledge or showed Him the path of understanding? And the implied answer is no one. No one can give counsel to God. No one can fathom the mind of God. Do you ever worry about uh, some of the world regimes? You ever worry about North Korea? Ever worry about Iran? This week they said North Korea may have developed a, another long-range missile. People in Iran are crazy. People in China, people in Russia. You ever worry about them? Listen, here's what you need to read. Verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket they are regarded as dust on the scales. So he gives you two comparisons there. You, you pour out a bucket and a little bit of water lingers and that's what, how God views the nations. Or as dust on the scales. So you go to Food Line and you're going to buy some bananas. And they're 39 cents a pound when they're on sale. And you get to the checkout. And the checkout person you know, slides them across that little glass plate. And that's a scale there. And it weighs them. And tells you how much you have to pay for your bananas, how much they are a pound. And so what if you're checking out, and she starts to put the bananas on the scale, and you say, wait a minute, would you dust that off because I don't want to pay any extra? I don't want to pay for that dust. Would you mind just wiping that dust off? You don't say that, do you? You disregard, you discount the dust on the scales. Well, this verse says that's how God regards the nations. He's not worried about North Korea. It's like dust on the scales to him, this verse says. Verse 17 says, Before him all the nations are nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. God's pretty much got this world scene thing. He's pretty much got this. He's not threatened. He's not worried, what am I going to do now? They are regarded as nothing before him. One of the themes that we're going to see, Isaiah 40 introduces several of the themes that we're going to see throughout these six chapters. And one of the themes is that God is incomparable. So I'm not going to talk a lot about it uh, today because we're going to spend a week on that. But it's introduced here in verse 18. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? God's incomparable. You can't compare any of the gods of the world or the philosophies of the world to Him. All the rest are idols. They are nothing. And so in the next verse, two verses, Isaiah speaks a little bit sarcastically, mocking other gods. Uh, listen what he says here. As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. So what it's saying there is when you make your God, you want to get some good wood to make your God out of because you don't want a God that rots. That would be really bad if the God, your God rots, right? You don't want to worship a God. Oh, my God's sort of rotted away. That, that's a bad thing, right? And the next verse he says, and the next part of the verse, verse 20, they look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. So another bad thing is if you're worshiping your God and it keeps falling over every time somebody slams a door, you know, that's not, oh, great God, I worship you, and I quit slamming the door, my God keeps falling over. You know, that's, that's not a good look, is it, for your God? So you want to craft one that's wide at the base so it won't fall over. Do you hear him sort of mocking other gods here, sarcastically? Isaiah is saying, there's no one that compares to God. All the other religions 
He said, are really nothing. Not a, not a politically correct statement, I know, today, but it's what the Bible says, that God is incomparable. The God of the Bible is incomparable. And it says in verse 22, He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Verse 23, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. So are there world leaders that you're concerned about? Listen, it says he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. I keep my notes, try to, when I've preached on passages before. Several years ago, I preached on this. And when I preached on this verse, I mentioned Fidel Castro and Saddam Hussein. They were big threats the last time I preached on this. Fidel Castro and Saddam Hussein have gone to meet the one true judge, Jesus Christ. They are no longer threats on the world stage And so the world rulers that we might be worried about today are no threats either. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. Verse 24, no sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, than he blows on them and they wither. Is God concerned about any, about Putin or about um, the crazy guy in North Korea? No, you know, here's what God says. He blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Do you see how great our God is? Should we be worried? Should we be anxious when we are connected by faith to a God such as this? One more comparison. I love verse 26. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. You ever looked at the stars on a clear night? Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. God created all the stars. He set all the stars in place, this verse says, and he has named all the stars. He knows them individually. Now again, The best we know, scientists tell us, there are a billion trillion stars. And that number doesn't mean much to me. It's beyond comprehension until I read a comparison that scientists had done to help me understand what a billion trillion is. And they tell us that that is more than all the grains of sand on all the beaches of the world. There are more stars in the sky than grains of sand on the beaches of the world. That just blows my mind. You just, next time you go to the beach, just dip out a sand bucket and start counting them and just see if that doesn't seem like a whole lot to you. And then, when you got nothing to do, you know, you've been there a few days, you got nothing to do, start naming the grains of sand, okay? You know, Fred, Mary, you know, Alpha, Beta, I don't know, whatever, wherever you want to go, name them. And I bet about 100,000 or 200,000 you run out of names. But a billion trillion stars, it says, he brings forth the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. That's how great our God is. Wow. So verse 27 says, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God? Do we have any, would we have any basis with a God like this of saying, well, I don't think God understands me. I don't think he knows me in my situation. No, we would not have any basis, would we, for a God this great to consider ourselves ignored. Verse 26 sums up this first theme. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. There are several different names for God that are revealed in Isaiah 40 through 45. Each week we'll look at one or more of these names. Today, just briefly, I want to mention one of them. The names that we're going to look at are printed on, the, on your worship folder there. 
The first one that we're going to consider because the names of God give insight into His character. And here in this verse, it tells us that the Lord is the everlasting God. That's His name or title. The everlasting God. That means that God has always been here. There's never been a time when God wasn't here and the very same that He is now. And there never will be a time that God won't be here and the very same that He is. He does not grow tired. He does not grow weary. He does not change. He is constant. He is never threatened. He never has some ups and downs. He is the everlasting God. And what a sense of stability that gives to our universe and to our lives in uncertain times. The latter part of verse 28 says, He will not grow tired or weary, and His understanding no one can fathom. So the first part of the theme unfolding verse 10 about His mighty arm is, our God is strong. He's strong. Now the second part of the theme unfolding verse 11 is, And He gives His strength to the weary. And that's what the rest of the chapter is about. Not only is God strong, but He's very generous with His strength. He does not hoard it. He freely gives it. Look at verse 29. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. So, if you will recognize you are weak, God will give you strength. Remember we said, two parts of this book, God's going to be to you what you need. If you're proud, He's not going to give you strength. If you're resistant, but if you're humble, repentant, contrite, recognize your weakness, your need, He gives strength to the weary. That's what the Bible says. And so, Today, would you ask God for the strength you need? Some of you are struggling with things. Some of you are struggling in your marriage. Would you ask God for strength? Some of you are struggling financially. Would you ask God for strength? He gives strength the weary. Right now, would you just call out to him? He can hear you in your heart. God, I'm sort of frazzled at work. God, raising these kids is is tough for me, and sometimes I, I I don't know what to do. I need your strength. Lord, I'm trying to decide my career path, and I'm not sure what way you want me to go. I need your strength in your family, in your work, in your life, in your relationships. Why would, you, why would you face it alone? Why would you be proud and try to get by? Would you not recognize there's an everlasting God who holds the waters in the hollow of His hand and spans the heavens with the breadth of His hand and He wants to give strength to the weary? Why don't you call on Him right now? Whatever you got going on. Tune me out. Tune him in. Won't you call on him right now? Next verse, verse 30 says, Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. So maybe you're a young person, and you have a lot more strength than you will have later in life. It's, it, you're at the height of your physical vigor and strength. But even young people. So maybe you're a teenager, a young adult here. And there's some things in life that have just gotten you down. Suicide's a, a, one of the largest cause of death among young people. Even young people, this verse says, grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. So maybe, would you set a pattern in your life of depending upon God? Would you ask Him now for the strength that you need? And then the last verse says, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. I want to do two word studies with you here. Two key words. Those who, first of all, hope. First key word is hope. Circle it there. Those who hope in the Lord. So the, the Hebrew word kawai is translated in our English Bibles 
three primarily different ways. It's about 45 times in the Old Testament, pretty evenly between these three. Wait. Some of your translations will say, those who wait on the Lord. Trust. Those who trust in the Lord. Our hope. Those who hope in the Lord. Those three words are intertwined in this Hebrew word. It means to trust God and to hope in Him with perseverance. There's the element of waiting. There's the element of trusting. There's the element of hoping. Would you put your trust in God today? Through His Son, Jesus Christ, would you call upon the name of the Lord and put your trust in Him? Would you put your hope in God? And would you wait on God? You're going through something tough right now. Will you hope? Will you trust? Will you wait on the Lord? Because those who hope or trust or wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Now the second word I want to talk to you about is the word renew. And it literally means, and it's translated other times in the Old Testament, change or exchange. It means you can exchange your strength for God's strength. Isn't that great? I got a low-tech visual aid uh, I want to share with you. Who took my low-tech visual aid? Uh, oh, it's on the ground. Thank you. Oh, I see. Oh, it must fall. Okay. So, my, um, so this, you know what this is? This is a Coca-Cola bottle. Uh, when I was a kid, this is what Coca-Cola came in. Um, aluminum cans were not developed till the mid-60s, plastic to the late 70s. So when I was a kid, about the only thing you could get a Coca-Cola in was one of these green bottles. When you drank the Coke out of the bottle, you didn't throw the bottle away. And you didn't, there was no recycling, you didn't recycle it, but you could return it to the store. It was worth three cents each, more than it sounds like today. Three cents each, 18 cents for a six-pack. So when you took your, had a little cardboard carton with a handle, and you had six of these, and you drank all the Cokes, and you went to buy Coke at the store, and you took back to the grocery store your carton of empty bottles. Because if you went to buy Cokes and didn't have the empties, you were going to get charged more. And you didn't want that. So you exchanged your empty bottles for full bottles. You took back the empties and you got the full ones. That's the word picture here. If this is how you are right now, and you're empty. Would you hear this verse? You can exchange your strength. God, I want to take back my empties and I want to have your full bottle of strength. Why don't you ask Him? Those who hope or wait or trust in the Lord will exchange their strength for His strength. Isn't that great? And it says, they will soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not be faint. Now, some people think that those last three phrases there are really in the wrong order. Wouldn't it have been more climactic to say, and if you come to the Lord, you will walk and not grow faint. And you'll run and not grow weary. And you'll soar on wings of eagles. Wouldn't it have been better to end on that? Soar on wings of eagles. I think it's this way because walking is harder than soaring. Right? Anybody can soar every once in a while. The hard part's walking every day, isn't it? Day in and day out. The long haul, that's the hard part. So Isaiah says, Yeah, you'll soar and you'll run, but day by day he'll give you the strength to walk. To walk. Every day. Now you say, well, what, what does this mean? If I, if, if I put my trust in the Lord right now and I hope in Him and I, I get His strength, am I going to feel different right now? I don't know if you're going to feel different. This is not a matter of mainly of feeling. It's a matter of trusting and hoping. 
But I can tell you, you'll be different. It simply means that you will have more strength and you can do what you do not think that you can do now, but that when you come into a faith, hope, patient relationship with God, He says, I fill you up, I exchange your strength, and you can do what life demands of you, and you'll soar, and you'll run, and you'll walk and not grow weary. Here's the first part of our vision of the greatness of God. God is strong. He's strong. You don't have to worry about Him. He's not in trouble today. Oh, God's in trouble. Not many people believe. He's not in trouble. He's okay. He's strong. And He gives His strength to those who are weary. Would you pray with me? Oh, God, if there are those who are weary here today, in any aspect of their lives, if there are those who feel themselves weak, then Lord, it's my privilege to voice a prayer on behalf of them right now. And we want to say, Lord, and wherever we are, we humble ourselves. We let go of our pride and our self-sufficiency and our objections. And we acknowledge that we are weak and dependent and that you are the one true God the strong God with a mighty arm. And we ask that you would gently lift us into your arms and carry us like a shepherd. And we want to exchange our empties for your full strength. So on behalf of people here listening to me or those who are watching on Facebook Live, wherever they are right now, I pray in behalf of them, Oh God, we cry out to you and we ask for strength for living. And we will follow you, and we will put our faith and our hope in you, and we will wait on you. And we are so glad that you offer us your comfort in a personal relationship to you through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you want to know how to form that relationship with Jesus, I'll be at the Welcome Center. Go up this way up the ramp toward guest parking. You can get your guest gift there. I would love to talk to you about receiving Christ as your Savior, uh, about joining this church. You need a church home. You need a family. You can join our church this morning right there or pray with you. If you're not quite ready to do that on that guest card that Tim talked about, there's also a place to check. I want to talk to a pastor. Be glad to call or email you and set up an appointment sometime to talk with you if that's a more convenient thing with you. Thank you. God bless you. Thanks for coming.